Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. One of the book reports that we just uh, we recorded it this morning, actually, is uh, Igor Volsky's new book, Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Culture with Fewer Guns. And uh, to our great pleasure and to our great benefit, on the line with us is Igor Volsky himself, the executive director of Guns Down America, gunsdownamerica.org. The book, of course, Guns Down. Website for that is gunsdownbook.com. And, of course, you can tweet Igor at I-G-O-R-V-O-L-S-K-Y or at Guns Down America. Igor, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So how do we defeat the NRA and build a safer (laughs) future with fewer guns? Yeah, well, look, I think the, the big point here in terms of how do you defeat the NRA is really on us. And what I mean by that is, you know, for years, advocates of gun control, politicians who supported gun control really pushed incremental reforms that focused on appealing to a magical moderate voter and talked about maybe a little bit of background checks. Maybe we could limit some kind of the most deadly weapons. But what's clear in the research, uh, and you allude to this, is that where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths of every kind, from suicides to homicides to accidental shootings to police shootings, both you shooting at police and police shooting at you. Uh, And, you know, of course, you look all around the world and you see the way countries have reduced gun deaths. They have things like gun licensing, gun buybacks, gun registration. And so in this book, I argue that's where we need to be. That's what we need to ask for if we want to, A, defeat the NRA, and then, B, really start saving lives in America. Yeah. So step one, reduce the number of guns in circulation. Step two, deal with the NRA. What is the NRA these days? Um, I I remember the NRA from when I was a little kid, I mean, literally back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, as the organization that did training on, say, firearms use. I remember the early 1970s, the NRA was supportive of gun control legislation. What happened? 
Well, you know, what really surprised me, Tom, is that that is certainly the public story, that right until 1977, when the NRA really had a revolution of leadership, that before then, that it was an association that believed in some sensible gun control. And that's true to a point. And that's to say that publicly, that's the image they portrayed. But what I learned in researching this book is that privately, what they told their membership was always the same. You know, I actually found evidence the first time the NRA came out against a gun control law was, I believe, in 1911 in New York. And then again, publicly, they were saying one thing, but privately, they were telling their membership that they have to write their lawmakers to oppose this measure because it would only take guns away from the good guys and leave the bad guys armed. Hmm. And what happened in 77 is that those private messages and those public messages merged and the NRA became what it is today. But this sense that they at one point were this great hunting club, I think the narrative there is a little more complicated because politically the message has been the same. Yeah. The modern day meme, and whenever I discuss guns on this program, I inevitably will get a call from somebody saying, well, you know, the founders wanted us to have guns. They put the Second Amendment in there in case the government ever became tyrannical so we could take down the government. I mean, after all, these were revolutionaries. They had taken down a government of their own, right, or, you know, that opposed them. And I have to point out to them that, uh, you know, in all of James Madison's notes on the, on the Constitutional Convention, in all of Jefferson's letters and, I mean, Hamilton's writings, take your pick. There literally is no American history indicating, not a single one that I could find, indicating that any of the founders or framers thought that Americans should be armed to take down the government that they themselves were in the process of creating. Um, but, you know, this story appears to have begun with an article in, I think it was 1974, in the American Rifleman, the NRA magazine, written by a teenager. Am I remembering that right? Well, I, I don't know about the, the teenager piece, but what is certainly true is that this idea of the Second Amendment guaranteeing individual gun rights and thus superseding any kind of gun control laws, you're exactly right to point out that that's a very modern idea that came about in the 1970s because, you know, as this revolution was happening within the leadership, because what was happening before then is that the old NRA leaders would publicly write in their materials that the Second Amendment was of no use to them in trying to push their agenda. And that's because the consensus, both the legal consensus, the public consensus, the consensus within the Supreme Court for many, many, many years was that, as you point out, this was a right that was confined um, within a militia, right? It's how the founding fathers really, really thought about it. And it's also why you had a lot of colonies, and also as the country began to expand west, they had some pretty strict gun, con gun control laws because they, too, understood that where there are fewer guns, there are fewer gun deaths. Right. Right. It's pretty remarkable. We're talking with Ier Volsky. His new book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. So how do we defeat the NRA, Igor? Well, look, it's going to take a long time. I'm under no illusion that we're going to be able to do this tomorrow. But look, step one is asking for what we really want and really building a movement in this country uh, to vote people out of office 
who take dollars from the NRA um, uh, and really tap into the great support that you have in this country for things like licensing and registration. Step two, I talk a lot about in the book of looking at non-legislative strategies to defeat the NRA and, and also take on the gun industry. And what my organization did last week is that we launched a campaign, Tom, that's pushing the 15 largest banks to stop doing business with the gun industry until that industry can be fundamentally reformed. Because as you know, they made a business decision in the late 80s, early 90s to start producing weapons, militarized weapons for the civilian market. That gave us the popularization of the assault weapons, but also these military-style handguns. Folks are dying from wounds they were surviving generations before. And so, you know, we're always looking, and the book talks about this, looking at how can you find other actors in society, whether it be corporate America uh, or other voices, to begin to change the conversation and the culture around guns so that you begin to give politicians the room uh, to take on the lobby politically and to do that more directly. But it's going to be a, a long process. I wish I could tell you that there was some kind of magic switch, um, but th there really isn't. They've been successful for so long. And if we're serious about it, and again, if we ask for what we want, which is fewer guns, we can get there sooner rather than later. Right. Igor, back in the 1990s, uh, there was, well, I remember actually back in the 80s, when I think the Pillar House restaurant in Boston was one of the very first restaurants, literally white tablecloth restaurants in the United States to go entirely smoke free. And it was slowly spreading through the late 80s and, and into the 90s. But then with these lawsuits and these pictures of uh, diseased lungs, explicit photographs, really gross photographs coming out and being promoted in television ads and things by anti-tobacco groups. And then the lawsuits that showed the, the death, the carnage of cigarettes. The tobacco lobby went from, in 1995, being literally the most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C., to in 2005 being one of the least powerful. Um, might not a similar strategy, particularly showing pictures of the kind of damage that gunshots do. We've got this now hashtag movement, my last shot, that the uh, yep. kids, the, the now, you know, teenage kids from Newtown have been promoting to please, if I'm killed with a gun, show the picture. Do what Emmett Till's mother did. What do you think about a cultural revolution that could change our taking our take on guns as rapidly as happened with tobacco, completely independent of the political sphere? Yeah, that's exactly right, Tom. And that's the kind of strategy that I'm talking about to really show people what guns do to the human body. And that's, by the way, uh, as we as we unroll our banking campaign, we're going to integrate those kinds of strategies into it. But, you know, a part of all of that is really reframing the conversation because, you know, for the last 20 years, and I, I just came back from Littleton, Colorado, the site of Columbine that occurred 20 years ago, believe it or not. Right. Um, for those 20 years, our politicians and the gun control movement talked about and still talks about taking guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense, particularly in a country where two-thirds of the gun deaths are suicides. 
The way the rest of the world has solved this problem is that they've recognized that guns are the problem. Guns are inherently dangerous in any civilian hands, and we need to change the environment in which they're purchased by raising the standard of gun ownership. And that's how you keep everybody safe. And so the kinds of techniques that you're talking about are really showing people what gunshot wounds look like. That's really critical to reframing the way our leaders talk about this issue. The book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns by Igor Volsky. And Igor, thank you so much for dropping by today. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure, too. Uh, Igor is also the executive director of GunsDownAmerica.org and his website, gunsdownbook.com. So check those out, and you can tweet him at Igor Volsky, B-O-L-S-K-Y. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, our book is Guns Down, How to Defeat the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns by Igor Volsky. This is from the preface, Shooting Guns in the Desert Can Surprise You is the title. We don't teach people how to shoot. We teach them how to think. Mike, the second in command of one of the nation's largest firearms training institutes, tells me over an early dinner. We were at a country club 20 miles north of the gun range where I just spent the last two days firing 200 rounds of ammunition and learning how to safely carry and operate a handgun. A tall, distinguished-looking man who bears a slight resemblance to former President George H.W. Bush, Mike is wearing a yellow polo shirt, neat, clean khakis, and a belt with a holstered handgun and two full magazines. As we sit in front of a beautiful Rocky Mountain backdrop, the tops of which will be covered with snow in a matter of months, I take a big swig of coffee and search for a tactful way to ask Mike the question that's been swirling around my brain since my first day of training at the Firearms Institute. I finally blurted out, I still don't understand why you're lying to your clients. A silence falls over our table. As Mike looks away from me, I look directly at him and wait for him to respond. 48 hours earlier, I had boarded a plane to learn how to shoot a handgun from the best instructors in the business. The opportunity arose through my friend Sam, not his real name, who in the course of my writing this book has become my guide to the world of firearm enthusiasts. Sam invited me to travel to the Southwest and experience a two-day firearm training course with people he described as the best instructors in the world. I will take it with you, and then after, you can interview all the trainers, he said. They all hate the NRA. He had arranged for the range to comp me the two-day course and rental equipment, plus complete access to the other students, instructors, and its leadership team. Sam, a white, boyish, fast-talking ex-Marine and hardcore gun enthusiast, had passionately pitched the idea to me by phone months earlier. You'll love it and really get a taste for what it's all about. Meet some great people and I'll do it with you, he said. Fashioning myself as an open-minded and adventurous person, I jumped at the chance. Surround myself with 600 armed Americans and thousands of rounds of ammunition for two full days of gun shooting in the hot desert? Sign me up. What could possibly go wrong? So there I am, a city slicker who hasn't sat behind the wheel of a car in three or four years, driving my fully insured economy rental car, literally into a desert at sunrise one Friday morning in October. I'm blasting a local hit station with the rindas rolled down, singing at the top of my lungs in an effort to wake myself up enough to handle a handgun. Yes, I'm belting out Sia while doing 70 down a dirt road without another car in sight. As I get closer, I turn off the radio, make the right turn, and take a deep, deep breath. Ahead of me, I see a line of cars about 30 deep and a large sign displaying the logo of the Institute. Next to it is a larger placard, 
Warning, unsafe to enter without authorization. Live fire training era, area, risk of severe bodily injury or death. I've arrived. Before I know it, I'm a, on a 500 acre compound in the middle of the mountains. I drive up to the parking lot, suddenly overcome by the vastness of this place and pull into a spot. Sam meets me and tells me that more than 600 people will be taking 20 different classes at the Institute that day, most of which involve handguns and rifles. After lunch, classes on automatic machine guns will be available. My eyes grow wide at the idea of even being near a machine gun. I smile at him and look around to see people carrying coolers and equipment, behaving as if they're at an amusement park or some kind of sporting event. This is my first feeling of panic, of being found out as an interloper, or worse, a spy in a foreign world. We move into a line for equipment rentals, and Sam points out the people in the best tactical outfits and reviews their looks. Finally, something I can get into. Sam himself is, himself is decked out in a slick black shirt, which accentuates his military build, and inverted cargo pants with pockets that expand into the leg, an outfitted suited for concealed carry, he tells me. Everyone around us is wearing a variation of this military-style clothing, and I realize that these are specialty clothes designed for recreational firearms shooting. Some even have custom hats with their names embroidered on the front and back as if they're actually serving in the military. These folks are really hardcore. It really has become a lifestyle, Sam says to me. I glance down at my jeans and bright red sneakers and realize I've made a horrible mistake. As if reading my mind, he says, you're just fine, and starts to examine the kit the young attendant has just handed me, making sure I have everything I need. We move forward toward a long row of tables where staffers are inspecting all weapons and ammunition. It's his first time here, Sam says. Magazines, 200 rounds of ammunition, safety goggles, electronic ear protection, holsters, you got it all. The inspector says, it's mostly for my benefit. I smile and make a mental note that those things that hold the bullets are called magazines, not clips. And, oh, by the way, it's rounds, not bullets. Okay, lift your hands up, the attendant says. Before I know it, he and Sam are putting a belt around my waist. Suddenly, the inspector calls out after us. Wait, are you the Sam, he asks. Sam turns around and smiles. I've seen your videos and stuff, the inspector enthusiastically tells him, becoming a starstruck fangirl right before our eyes. The book is Guns Down by Igor Volsky. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. David in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, David, thanks for listening to WGRN. What's on your mind today? Hi. I was listening with interest to the um, NRA discussion. Yeah, the conversation with Igor Volsky about his new book, Guns Down. Yeah. One issue that doesn't get much mention is the proliferation of military weapons just by the military. I mean, there's constant wars and there's constant production of weapons 
those weapons just don't disappear. They exist, and they're constantly moving around, and the United States gets a good percentage of them. And then also Hollywood. Hollywood in every single movie has to have a gun somewhere. Yeah. I think we need to, to reduce that so that people think, oh, you can't solve problems with guns. I mean, that, that doesn't work. So I think there's another angle to this that needs to be considered, not just the political side. I think the NRA gets some exposure, but very little to the average person. The, the big exposure is, like I said, with Hollywood and the military. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And the Hollywood part, um, I don't have an easy answer or solution to that. It, it, it is, you know, it's going to require some self-policing or some blowback. And, you know, I haven't seen much of that yet, but, you know, who knows? With regard to the military, Ronald Reagan started this program. I think it was called the 1090 program. I always think of it as 1099, which is an IRS, you know, it's how you uh, list wages, not regular wages. Um, but it had a four-digit acronym that has a one and a nine in it. And what this program did is it allowed local police departments to get weapons, quote, surplus weapons from the military, or right. even directly from defense contractors themselves with a massive federal subsidy. And right. so the result of that was that police departments in, in small town America are getting half tracks and Humvees and and, you know, military vehicles and and uh, high powered rifles and and body armor. And I right. mean, you know, they're, they're building SWAT teams in places where you would never need a SWAT team. And then because they've got it, they're using it to to uh, to to issue like, you know, summonses and and divorce decrees and things. I mean, it's totally right. bizarre, but it's leading to a lot of American death. And that program has 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 exploded the number of defense contractors that are selling directly to these small town and big town police departments, right. stuff that they never really should have. They shouldn't have weapons of war in our cities, whether they're handled by the cops or by the bad guys. Right, right. That's exactly right. I, I know a specific example on that where um, a rural county bought a armored car. And uh, I talked to the county commissioner. He said, she said, why do they need an armored car? They got rid of it. But, you know, that kind of silliness doesn't make any sense. Yeah. When you strap on all this stuff, all the helmets, all the black vests and the bulletproof vests and all that weaponry, you're going to use it. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it alters psychology, actually. When people dress like that, it's a real interesting thing to try. I mean, you know, dressing up like a soldier, dressing up like a police officer actually changes people's psychology and, and makes people more authoritarian and more assertive, uh, particularly men. And, you know, this is a problem. David, thank you for the call. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, Fred uh, Gutenberg or Guttenberg, who I believe is one of the parents of uh, one of the Newtown parents. I might be wrong on that. He might be one of the uh, Marjorie Stoneman, Stoneman Douglas uh, parents. Just tweeted. This is an important tweet. The tweet is from NORA. It's uh, Wells Fargo is the leading financier of the gun industry. If you care about gun violence, perhaps you should take your business and your investments elsewhere. He tweets, this is an important tweet. When other banks step up to drop the gun industry, Wells Fargo stepped in. If you still bank with Wells Fargo, you should switch. Amen. So, uh, you know, and by the way, small banks, small local banks, credit unions, credit unions are co-ops. I mean, it just it doesn't get better than that. So anyhow, Rich in Mission Viejo, California. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? 
Hi, Tom. I'm really glad to talk to you. Basically, uh, I wanted to talk about the militarization of the police. Yeah. And uh, there was a burn bill that was pushed by Joe Biden, and he was the one that pushed all of the military hardware into the police. And if they Wait a minute. A burn it, bill. What does that mean? It was a burn bill that that was pushed by Joe Biden uh, to to uh, the president, okay, Obama. And what happened was uh, this gave it was I think a billion dollars or whatever of military hardware to the police, and if they didn't use it, they would have to give it back. Okay, and this is why you had all of these raids where you would have you know a summons served by people that were a SWAT team, okay? And, uh, right, somebody's $200 in debt, and to enforce the court order, they show up with 30 cops and a SWAT team. Exactly. Yeah. Matter of fact, they broke into a mayor's house down in Maryland, okay, and they thought he was a drug dealer, and he wasn't. It was another guy that was killed because he made a bet, okay, with a police officer. I mean, there's a really good book, The Militarization of the Police, Right. And uh, I forget who wrote it. I was looking all over for the title of the book. In a, in a book, I think I lent it to somebody, and, and I didn't get it back yet. Right. But it's a really, really good book, and it tells you exactly, you know, all the different, well, not all, but many of the different horror so, stories. So what I don't happen. understand, Rich, you mentioned Joe yeah. Biden, and you mentioned this phrase, burn bill, and I don't understand exactly why. Is this a good piece of legislation or a bad piece of legislation? What bad does burn bill mean? And why was Joe Biden pushing it? I don't know why he was pushing it, but what it did is it pushed military hardware to the police. Okay. Okay. So this and passed Congress. Since, and they've okay. been using it. I thought that started during the Reagan administration, Rich. Yeah, I know it may have started during the Reagan, but Joe Biden pushed this thing. Yeah. And it was it was uh, the burn bill. Thanks. And and you know, to the extent that we get partisans calling into this program on behalf of or in opposition to any Democratic nominee for president. Um, I just want to put a cautionary note out there. We are not doing circular firing squad on this program. Um, if you're calling to trash Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, for that matter, we had somebody earlier calling to trash Bernie. Um, and it's because, you know, you're supporting. So don't even try. I mean, I, obviously, he if that was his mission, he just did it. But I'm going to get increasingly rigid about this as time goes on. Obama warned about this. He, he says, you know, look out for the circular firing squad. Now, he specifically said the lefties are words to that effect. I'm frankly concerned right across the spectrum. We need to end the Trump presidency at the ballot box in 2020. Trump, Pence, the Republican control of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, a whole bunch of them. We need to vote them out. And we're not going to do that if we're constantly fighting with each other. Brad in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind? I think the increasing militarization of the police, donning body armor, helmets, everything. I, th I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it would seem to me that it demonizes whom you're pointing the guns at as the enemy, uh, whether they have any ill intent toward you or not. It makes the people you're arresting the enemy. Yeah, or the other. Yeah, you're right. And once somebody is clearly identified as the other, then, you know, dealing with them, in quotes, in ways that might not be normal is perfectly acceptable. And, and I, I share your concern about that in, a, in pop culture, in the way that we see cops treating people in the movies and on TV. 
Louise and I, when we were kids, there was a show Hawaii Five-0 that we really liked. And when we ended up both having surgery, we were binge watching the modern version of uh, Hawaii Five-0 while recovering. And I was just astonished that repeatedly the police in Honolulu, according to this television program, were beating up people in interrogation rooms. Uh, in one case, the you know Lieutenant McGarrett, Commander McGarrett or whatever his title was, shot a guy in the knee while in the interrogation room because the guy wouldn't answer his questions. I mean, this is like extremely illegal. And my concern is not so much that the American public is being caused to think that A, as Brad was just saying, those people, in quotes, you know, the criminals, are so worthy of being injured or being hurt that, you know, it's no big deal. My biggest concern is that regular, normal, ordinary, everyday cops, police officers, are watching these shows. And who wouldn't, right? I mean, if there was a show about a talk show host, I'd be watching it. <laughs> wouldn't I be curious, right? How, how, do, how does this industry work? What do people say? What do people do? So, Police officers are overrepresented among the people who watch cop shows. And the cop shows are setting a terrible example. They're basically establishing new norms for behavior among our police departments. And, you know, I, I saw the same thing in an episode of NCIS the other day where, where uh, uh, what's his name, Gibbs is interrogating a guy. The guy's not responding to him, so he takes his ballpoint pen and runs it right through the, smashes it right through the guy's hand, pierces his hand, right, stabs him. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't want our, you know, none of us want our police officers to be behaving like that. That is, you know, that is absolutely a violation of the Constitution. It's absolutely a violation of the principles on which this country was founded. It's a violation of absolutely everything that we hold as values in this country. And yet that kind of violation is routinely shown on television as, well, here's how you become a real cop to our police. Cheryl in Morning View, Kentucky. Hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind today? Yeah, it's actually Carol. Carol, and, I'm And um, I'm calling, I was listening to George Stephanopoulos' show yesterday, and he interviewed Andrew Wang, and I found that there was one comment that seemed very ironic to me, that he mentioned that there were white nationalists supporting Andrew Wang and, and were saying things about Trump? Is that possible? Did you find that? In yeah, the, 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 the weird thing about white nationalists that most people don't know, uh, well, A, Wang is talking about guaranteed basic income, and a lot of yeah. white nationalists are poor. They're poor white people. Okay. And so they're like, oh, he wants to give us money. But the, but the Andrew Yang, I'm sorry, what did I say? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, Andrew <laughs> Yang, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about uh, Andrew Yang is that he's Asian. And there's actually this racial hierarchy that white supremacists hold to. And they believe, some of them believe, and, and you will find this in their literature and you will find it in their doctrines, some of them believe that intellectually, Asians, and in some cases Sephardic Jews, are superior to, to garden variety European white people. And so, I mean, it's, it's weird. But, you know, it's like yeah, the hypersexualization yeah. of, of uh, Asian women, too. I mean, there's, there's all these weird racial stereotypes floating around, and those are among them. Okay, because I thought, geez, this is something that could actually cut into the base that seems to be written in stone for the 37%. Um, Trump's base? I mean, 
Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think anybody wants to embrace them yeah. um, and say that they support it. That's an interesting. And, uh, it's an interesting question, Cheryl. We've had Andrew Yang on this uh, on this program. We should probably get him back yeah. and ask him specifically yeah. about that because it is fascinating stuff. Cheryl, I have to well, move along, just, but thank you for the call. And thanks for the question. It's a very thoughtful one. Victor in Irvine, California. Hey, Victor, what's on your mind today? So I really love the topic today, and I think it addressed a lot of stuff. But Are you talking about the gun violence issue or one of the other topics we've talked about? Gun violence and, and how it portrayed on the media, right. through the media. Right. I, I think it's done carelessly, and I agree with you 100% that when you have a show about cops, because there's so many cop shows on the TV now, more so than any I've seen in the 40 five years that I've been on this earth. And I, I think you're right in, to say that these cops, you know, they look at this, that's a kind of a signal to them that this type of behavior is good. Yeah. And yeah, it's I, not just normal, it's celebrated. You. Exactly. It's worse exactly. than even normalization. And I, I feel like, you know, almost every state we're operating under a military environment with these police officers being armed and policing us the way they do. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know what the solution, because on the other side of it, or the argument is that the reason why they have these arms is because the bad guys, in quotes, um, are armed to the T. Right. But, you know, I'm assuming that's what the SWAT team is for. So I don't understand why these every, everyday cops are walking around with, you know, or have access to these high-power weapons. Yeah, SWAT teams were originally conceived as, uh, I think the S in SWAT is strategic, particularly with uh, snipers and things, as a group of people who could deal with extreme situations. But because so many police departments around the United States have developed SWAT teams, they've got to find something for them to do, and so they've got them serving summonses and things, and people are dying as a consequence of it. You know, a SWAT team inappropriately showing up at the wrong address, or people responding to them in ways that cause them to use violence. You're, you're right, Victor. We're, we are looking at the militarization of American policing, and it really started in the 80s during the Reagan administration and went on steroids in the early 90s during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration with this massive transfer of semi-automatic weapons from the military to the police. Victor, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. And it's something we really need to re-examine. You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this, this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my, brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, She has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, uh, if it, you know, it, it would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the ExpressVPN uh, apparently was just dropping our data and you know encrypted from where we were in Mexico right into the United States 
you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with Ex ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen. And it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than seven dollars a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have. And Ex ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product. I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. In our newest uh, members-only video, uh, we examine a whole bunch of stuff that has to do with living long and living healthy. There are these things called blue zones, five places in the world where people live routinely into their 90s and hundreds, long, long live people. And uh, the, the researcher who put this thing together discovered that one of those five places in the world where people live so long is right here in the United States. A little town of Loma Linda, I'll tell you in the, or I tell you in the clip exactly what it is they're doing that causes them to live so long. And then we get into how extra virgin olive oil actually can block Alzheimer's disease, how Monsanto's glyphosate may be increasing cancer risk, and a common food additive that appears to be triggering celiac disease. All amazing stuff in this new members-only video, so check it out. There's links to it and information about it in our newsletter, which is free. You can sign up at TomHartman.com and, of course, on our website at TomHartman.com. Anyhow, Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? I really think that case, um, the Remington case in uh, Connecticut is going to be key to how gun is going to be viewed, you know, moving forward. Okay, so people who, for people who don't know what you're talking about, I believe you're talking about the case where the survivors of, uh, I believe it was Newtown, are yes, now, Newtown. Yeah. yeah, are now suing one of the gun manufacturers. Specifically, I think this is the gun that makes the Bushmaster that AR-15 that that shot up the school uh, so badly. And they're specifically suing them over their marketing because Congress gave them basically immunity from lawsuits mm -hmm. for liability. So now they're saying, okay, we can't sue you for your gun, for your weapon. You know, uh, you know, you can sue anybody else if they make a product that kills people. You know, if you make a toaster that explodes and kills people, you can sue them. Or if you make a car that's, you know, causes deaths, you can sue, but not gun manufacturers. But they are suing, saying that this is being marketed to civilians using the language and the symbology of war, and that, yes. that's, that that's wrong, right? Yes. Okay. He, so. yes, he said it best, he said it best. Yeah. And, so, um, to continue where you were going with that thought. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's just want to discuss that, but I think the tragic thing in New Zealand that, you know, hate is global. It can be spiked by a person anywhere in the world. You have Trump in USA igniting another person who's a thousand miles away in New Zealand. So, so right. wars do have matter, and we have to be very cautious of all these fascists in any country, whatever, the U.S., Brazil, any, in Philippines, any country, we have to be aware of them because they work can travel globally. But what I wanted to call about is, Tom, is that I'm very concerned about these TV pundits on TV constantly telling Democrats to move to the middle. We did not win the White House by moving to the middle. We won the, the House by being progressive. So we need to stay that course. Okay? I agree. We, we, have, we have figured it out. So if it's not broken, 
Don't fix it. But also the progressive position, Omar, is the position that is held by more than 60 percent of Americans and in most issues yes. by more than 80 percent of Americans. So to say that it's actually moving to the left, it's it's you know, Bernie Sanders is not the left. Bernie Sanders is literally the middle of America. It's where the majority of Americans want Social Security expanded. The majority of Americans want Medicare for all. The majority of Americans think everybody, you know, should have, everybody should have access to health care. The majority of Americans want minimum wage raise. The majority of Americans want the right to unionize. The majority of Americans want their air and water clean and safe. The majority of Americans want their food clean, safe, and free of, of uh, you know, industrial uh, chemical products, uh, pesticides, herbicides. I mean, the majority of Americans basically would like to have a decent life in this country. And, and those are the positions that, and it's not just Bernie. I use Bernie as the example because everybody says he's the most left. But, you know, okay, if he's the, the extreme left guy, the democratic socialist, and he's right in the middle, then where is everybody else? They're trailing off toward the Republican side. I mean, but but still, you know, anybody on the Democratic side at least is not crazy and is going to be better than nobody. But but this whole idea that, you know, oh, we need to go to this. this, this you know, I mean, yeah. you would think that if that was true, that Kristen Gillibrand right now would be embracing the center. And instead, she's gone full Bernie. And this is a woman who used to be a tobacco lobbyist and a Republican. She has seen the entire spectrum of politics in the United States, literally lived the entire spectrum of politics in the United States. And now that she's running for president, has obviously concluded that what the country wants is the Bernie Sanders agenda and that she can deliver it as a woman because, hey, a lot of people would like there to be a woman as president, myself included. I think, you know, having a woman as a president would be a great thing. Although, uh, frankly, at the end of the day, I look at people's policies as much as their identity mm -hmm. and, and I think in some cases more than and, their identity. And the silent majority in this country are progressive and, and they were awoke in 2018. That's yeah. why we won the House. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, you're welcome, Omar. Thanks for the call. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? Are you familiar with an Arlie Russell Hothschild? I'm not. You're not. What? She wrote a book called Stranger in Their Own Land. She's a sociologist. Mm -hmm. and, and I've caught some of her uh, uh, PBS snippets on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And one of the great ones is why Louisiana blames the government, not corporations, for pollution problems. And she was, uh, are you familiar? You are familiar with, um, uh, uh, doggone it, uh, the, the Friday night show, um, Bill Maher. Yeah. He, he's, I'll be on a show in thing, June. <laughs> right. About getting getting out of the blue bubble and getting into the red bubble. Yeah. Well, that's what she did, exactly what she did. Mm -hmm. She was a blue Democrat who'd lived in the blue bubble for all her life in California, and she went to Louisiana to try and understand the difference between what the bubbles were all about and, and, and the sociology behind it. Right. And she really kicked butt. Yeah. She did good. I'm guessing a large chunk of those bubbles, Randy, has to do with media. The local talk radio in Louisiana, the, the presence, the ubiquity of Fox News, um, you know, in the local diner and the local truck stop right. and local hotels. And, you know, I, I mean, I've seen that yep. myself going to red states. Yeah, even in the hotel lobbies, they'll have Fox News on. Yep. Yep. Why red states uh, depend on distrust of the government. To, yeah. to stay in business. Yeah, and mistrust and fear and outrage are the currency of Fox News and right-wing hate radio. They, I mean, they're literally, literally the currency of it. Randy, thanks for the heads up and uh, the information. It's always nice to hear from you.
reading today from Dr. Bryant Welch's book, State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. This is in chapter one. Do you think there might be something just a little off in America, psychologically speaking? Of course, there's something wrong. We all know it. And in many quarters, our national behavior hovers on the brink of a very different, even deranged society that many fear is leading to fascism. Many of us play a game of ain't it awful about Donald Trump, and we talk in the latest psychological jargon about how odd and dangerous he is. But that's not really the issue in America, is it? Millions of Americans voted for Donald Trump, and the rest of us were unable to defeat him. The seemingly most incompetent person ever to run for president, and certainly the most bizarre. The real issue in America is what's wrong with our own minds. The 300 million of us who swim in the American pond that has not just led to Donald Trump and his obvious bizarreness, but to this massive breakdown in our psychological stability as a nation that we all feel in the deepest parts of ourselves. A decade ago, I wrote a book, State of Confusion, that addressed this problem and described an ominous series of psychological assaults to the stability of the American mind. In that work, I sounded an alarm over the then-emerging erratic psychological behaviors that have led to what we are now witnessing full-blown in America, the destabilization of the American mind. The election of Donald Trump was but a symptom. Harvard University law professor Lawrence Tribe summarized State of Confusion as a vitally important investigation of how a cadre of ethically challenged political operatives and their religious and journalistic allies have gradually distorted and disabled the minds of ordinary Americans and have all but crippled the once extraordinary mind of America. Tribe added, it is not too late for us to reclaim our identity, but we will succeed only if we take to heart the lessons so lucidly laid bare by the remarkable work of this insightful psychologist and experienced political activist. End of quote. We did not heed Professor Tribe's advice, nor have we appreciated the issues I raised in State of Confusion. Instead, the destructive process has continued unabated and unrecognized, and the techniques used to manipulate the already vulnerable American mind have grown more powerful. The psychological processes and dynamics I described back then are very much the ones that are operative today. They are merely worse. We have now seen shocking states of psychological denial that our planet is hemorrhaging. Each new season spews forth spectacular new forms of environmental earthly protests of how the planet has been abused, its miraculous natural rhythms so powerfully, rapaciously disrespected. Unprecedented storms, fires, hurricanes, and our newest bomb cyclones give voice to Mother Earth's dismay. And yet millions of Americans, despite this evidence, go deeper into psychological denial. We dismantle our already inadequate environmental regulations created to safeguard the planet, hopefully before it becomes uninhabitable. Is something psychologically wrong here? We have successfully taken the excess out of our First Amendment right to free speech, by arguing free speech does not give one the right to holler fire in a crowded theater. But at the same time, when our Second Amendment says we cannot abridge our state's rights to have a militia, we are in some robotic logic required to give every angry person full access to weapons needed to quickly snuff out the life of everyone in that theater or school or concert or nightclub. Any angry person in America, be they terrorist, super patriot, or just someone who'd like to end their unhappy life with a glorious bang, is allowed to commit their own grand form of suicide with semi-automatic weapons that can literally kill another human being every second. Our taxed and now terribly compromised form of mental reasoning has led us to this paralysis in our problem-solving ability. We understandably blame the NRA, 
But how do we explain their minds? And how do we explain our inability to defeat their minority effort? When we look in the faces of the grieving parents of Sandy Hook or Stoneman Douglas victims. Remarkably today, when our most precious surviving youth stand up bravely in protest, they are referred to as Nazis. We can understand these American minds and we can change them, but only if we will put the American mind itself front and center in our awareness and study of it. It's not just our environment that is deteriorating from the stresses we put on it. It is also our minds. In reissuing this supplemented version of State of Confusion, I'll show why the inherently vulnerable, increasingly traumatized, and badly manipulated American mind has reached a point that now threatens America's democracy, maybe even our survival. Focusing on Donald Trump's obvious impairments is a dangerous distraction that keeps us from attending to this real problem. Fortunately, I believe we do have the knowledge and resources to combat the true threat and reclaim the American mind with its glorious commitment to the freedom of the human spirit. But we must confront the reality of our situation now. We don't have another 10 years. I am a clinical psychologist and attorney and have had an unusual opportunity to understand current American political behavior, not only from work with patients, but also in my time spent in Washington, D.C. as a national spokesperson for psychology and mental health. My life passion has been the human mind as it shapes how we feel in the interior of our own personal private space, how it creates the way we experience our most intimate relationships, and how it influences the way we conduct our public affairs. State of Confusion by Bryant Welch. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X Chair. And I got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. They call it DVL. The X Chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X Chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X Basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X chair's new financing option to pay as little as 30 bucks a month to take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. And X chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to X chair Tom, T H O M, X chair Tom.com, X chair Tom, or call 1 844 4X chair. Comes with a 30 day no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code XWheels over at XChairTom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new XWheels with your chair. That's XChairTom, T-H-O-M, XChairTom.com. Tom Harbin here with you. Denise in Chicago. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind today? Denise, listening on iTunes? Well, I really liked your show and the conversation about pundits and you know, the people that come on and they seem to pop up from nowhere and have these really influential statements that they want to make. I don't know who they are. I don't know what qualifies them to talk mm-hmm. and be an expert. It seems to have been gravitating more to opinions instead of statements of facts and right. and true analysis. And And one of the things that just has been bubbling up more often, and, and I, I don't want to bash anybody because, you know, th- they say good things and, and, and they say not so good things, or, or, or things I agree with and things I don't agree with. But, you know, meet meet the press, and I know, you know, meet the Republicans, and mm-hmm. and um, 
Chuck Todd, you know, sometimes I think he's brilliant. And, and just lately, he has been interjecting hyperbole and sensationalism that is off the charts, and it's not based on any fact. And, and, and what he did was his statement of, I'm trying to go to the word that he used, Democrat, that we were all up in arms about what we're going to do about prosecuting or handling the amount of crimes and, and what that takes, and that it was separating our party. Well, in my opinion, I think that's nothing further than the truth, and mm -hmm. I, I don't know what he bases those facts on. Chuck Todd is a reliable repeater of Republican talking points. I mean, that's just... Yeah. You know. Yeah, but I was so disappointed because David Axelrod has turned into a pundit, and I don't know, you probably saw his mm. Twitter statement earlier this week about, you know, that uh, we're just going to contribute to the witch hunt. No, 81, I wish it was 501, you know? I mean, yeah. we have to be aggressive. You know, I think that the crimes that are going to stick are, are going to be the ones that bubble up to the top, you know what I mean? And the rest will be for the years to come. So I just wanted to, you know, categorically say that the Democrats are not in disarray over this. And, and oh, if someone wants to speak to it, you know, you just don't make up stuff. You know? Yeah, what you're looking at with the pundification of television, what used to be called television news, is reality TV. That's what's going on. The, the networks have figured out they're having to pay their hosts literally millions of dollars a year. I mean, that's any, anybody who's on these networks, you know, the paycheck at the very bottom, they started a million bucks a year. And so they're looking for ways to diversify the shows for free or for cheap. I mean, typically these pundits, right. if, they're, if, they're, if they're identified as a, quote, contributor uh, or having an affiliation with the network and an exclusive agreement with the network, they get anywhere from $500 to $2,500 every time they, they show up on TV. If they're not, they're there for free. And, yeah. you know, this is just reality TV. That's all it is. It's cheap to produce. And we all know from Jen Pensko's brilliant documentary, Brainwashing of My Dad, how Fox News can literally take somebody and brainwash them and turn them into a cult zombie and how difficult it is. And Jen was successful ultimately in doing this, but how difficult it is to unbrainwash somebody who's been brainwashed by Fox News, by this cult. And... Frankly, it looks to me like Donald Trump has become a member of that cult. Probably was all along. But, I mean, he's like totally up to his eyeballs in it to the point that everything else is fake news. Which is the message that the right-wing cult... I mean, Rush Limbaugh started promoting this message back in 87 when he first started his show. said, so, I'm telling you the real truth. The truth that the liberal media is afraid to tell you or unwilling to tell you. And meanwhile, the attorney general for the state of New York is asking for millions from Trump in not just restitution, but also basically damages for running a fake charity and benefiting from it. I mean, it's just incredible. Matt, listening to uh, AM 910 out of San Francisco in Napa, California. Hey, Matt, what's on your mind? So about, mostly about Wikipedia, but it also draws on the kind of broader narrative of where we really find truth and expertise and what, you know, expertise is buried in vested interest and that whole endless chain of confusion, basically. But anyway, on Wikipedia, especially in terms of health issues and holistic health issues, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Null, somewhat controversial figure, but yeah. certainly been around a long time and done a lot of good stuff if, you know, maybe he's been off on a couple issues possibly. But yeah, anyway, but he, mostly he makes his living hustling all... vitamins and, and books. Yeah. 
Okay, but he gives a lot of good information out, regardless of how he sure. makes his money, in my opinion, at least. So he's been doing a, a him and a group of other researchers have been doing an expose on Wikipedia. And I think it's even pretty clear to the common person that if you look at the articles on holistic health, it's generally Stephen Barrett from Quackwatch that's referenced over and over again. He has no, you know, I think he's got a degree in psychiatry or something, you know, he doesn't really have any credentials to be way above anybody else, and that one person is quoted all the time. And anyway, what Knowles seems to be finding out is that, you know, it is a closed system, basically. You know, the reputation of Wikipedia is that it's open for editing by a large group of people, and it's done in sort of an open-source fashion and anyway yeah. so he's launching some lawsuits against them because well, that's great i should i shouldn't talk with gary i've been complaining for years on this program about the right-wing bias on much of wikipedia particularly the history stuff i mean you read about fdr you read about the new deal you read about the great society you read about the accomplishments of progressives over the years the Great Depression and how it happened and what caused it and what exacerbated it every one of those topics Wikipedia has heavily skewed toward right and libertarian policies. Some of the exposés of libertarianism, uh, just, you know, like, like that it was created originally by the fee, uh, you know, a, a real estate industry marketing group as a front for their lobbying efforts and things like that, you know, absent as far as I, as I recall. And I've told the story of walking, this was 15 years ago, walking into a, uh, a right-wing think tank in Washington, D.C. I was getting a tour. There's this whole room full of desks with, uh, you know, scrubbed face, fresh face young interns sitting there at uh, computers where uh, the vast majority of them were on Wikipedia. And they weren't reading, they were editing. Wikipedia has a problem with right-wing bias and apparently corporate bias as well from what you're saying, Matt. Yeah, exactly. And and even Snoops or Snopes, I'm not quite sure Snopes, how you say yeah. that. Everybody seems to look to them as a big objective opinion place. And from what I understand, it's just a, a pair of older a, a couple in the San Fernando Valley that, again, has... Yeah, it started that way. They, they've gotten so popular now, and, they're, and I think they're putting advertising on their site. They're generating money. They're, they've hired some people. They actually did an investigative report recently. I'm not ready to uh, discount Snopes, you know, even though they've called me out in the past. Uh, when they called me out, the one time they called me out, they were actually right. So, you know, uh, that's, that, Snopes is not, a, in, in my mind, a, a concern. Wikipedia is, and I hope they get it together because I really like Wikipedia. But I'm finding, as I'm writing these books, that I just have to stay away from it as a source of information on anything from, you know, guns to voting to, to monopolies, which are the topics of the three books I've been writing over the last two years. Matt, thanks for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Particularly guns and monopoly. Well, and voting, too. Well, voting, uh, Wikipedia had a pretty good summary, but phew, some of the other stuff, wow. Dennis in Millington, Michigan, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Dennis, what's up? My big complaint, again, like with you, is the media. I think there's no good discussion about defining socialism, for instance. It seems to me that they take the Republican point of view that when we say socialism, they want us to get a picture in our heads of Joe Stalin or Mao Zedong. Right. Instead of talking about the, the democratic socialism of, let's say, Norway or Germany or France or those countries yep. uh, that are that way, and, and to a certain extent, of course, Australia and even uh, Canada in some ways. Yes. So I, I just want to say that the other thing is is that what they should do is actually point out to most people, and I'm like a middle-class person, and I'm old, I'm 72, and the idea is there are so many people my age 
and that are white males and white females. And the idea is they don't understand that they're basically socialists. Yeah. Most of them were, you know, they were, they were educated in public schools. They get Social Security. They get Medicare. And you can go on and on and on. Public well, that's, that's why my rebuttal, and this is what makes me crazy that I'm not seen on TV, is when one of these fools on television, you know, who pretends to be a TV anchor or a TV star or whatever, says to some, you know, Democratic politician or consultant, well, you know, uh, what's going to happen if, if uh, you know, if America ends up with a socialist in charge? The immediate response is not... Well, okay, if we get somebody in there, if you're so worried about socialism and you want to do away with socialism, where do you want to start? Shall we start with Social Security, do away with the socialist Social Security? Shall we do away with socialist Medicare? Shall we do away with our socialist public roads and highways? Shall we do away with our socialist air traffic control system? Shall we do away with our socialist fire departments? Do away with our socialist public schools? Of course, Betsy DeVos wants to do that. I mean, where right. do you want to start? This should be asked of, of some of these TV hosts who are so hysterical that there's socialists in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Well, DeVos is from my state. Yeah, my and, state too. I feel devastated in public education here. Hopefully our new governor can put us back on the right yeah, track. Yeah, more than half of your religion. kids in Michigan now are going to private schools, you know, as yeah. the result of the efforts of Betsy DeVos, her family, and her foundation to a large extent. Dennis, thank you for the call, and thanks for, uh, for watching us in my home state. I grew up in Michigan. I lived there the first 27 years of my life. I love Michigan. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Would you like to hear special content where we talk about, you know, what the billionaires are up to or climate change or the newest things in science? There's all kinds of great content like that. That's also available. The place to find all this is the Tom Hartman channel over on Patreon. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. As slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. And there, when you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show every day, anytime you want, any place you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Larry in Upland, California. Hey, Larry, what's up? Democrats need to tell the truth about what's happening with our economy. And that is, in the last 120 years, Democrats have seen roughly 20,000 points added to the Dow. The Republicans, uh, prior to Trump becoming president, saw zero. And actually, the points that Trump has seen only occurred while Obama's policies were in play. Right. In other words, Republican policies have given America zero dollars in capitalism. Democrats have put all of it in there, but they did it by putting socialist systems uh, into our economy. Yeah. Yeah. Lifting people out of poverty and, yeah, building building an American Putting money in those poor people's hands. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Larry, thank you. Uh, spot on. All righty. What a day, huh? We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us, all hands on deck. It requires full participation. So please get out there, get active, tag, you're it. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon and uh, keep it up. We got a, we got a, we got a long way to go here, but it's, it's possible to make all this work. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 